The business of culture, the culture of business, media and technology, markets, politics, startups, Wall Street, cuisine, funny people. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. But I got a chuckle and I was like, oh, oh, this is, this is it. This is the avenue. I can project my pain and my insecurity, everything that I dislike about myself onto these people and create joy out of it. It's kind of incredible. As a guy who's been in therapy for a lot of years, it's better than any form of therapy, really. Aspiring comedian Cole Meyer has been doing stand-up since the wise old age of eight. He's now 21, fresh out of college, waiting tables and taking names. But it's not all chuckles all the time. Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon & Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. The link is FullDRadio.com. Follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle FullDRadio. Shout out to our listeners on WVTF, Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can message me to carry Full Disclosure on your air. Joining me in studio, barely 21 years old, is traveling comedian Cole Meyer. He's a recent graduate of UCLA. He did it in less than three years, where he majored splendidly with high marks in uh, poli-sci. But he didn't want to do that. So now he's a starving comic on the road and slumming it on my show. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. I, I like uh, I like to call me a comic on the road. I think that's a bit of a stretch, but I will take it. It's not but on you're my taking resume. names and taking numbers and ready to get booked, right? That's that's what I'm trying so to do. So you're appearing at Sandman's Comedy Club here in Richmond, your hometown, yeah. uh, yes. on uh, Thursday the 22nd? Yes, Thursday and then also Friday the 23rd for two more shows. Wow, so I caught cool. you kind of, you know, I, I, I hitched this show to your star as it's crossing <laughs> through town. How is this working? Let, let me ask you something. The, the comedians we've had on, Maz Jabrani, Tara Grami, Kyle Grooms is going to be on. They've always had this itch to kind of drop out from the formal track. In fact, many of them did. They couldn't stand school. Did you, you, you clearly were driven to get accepted to school. We're going to excerpt from some of your reels when you were 10 or 11 years old. You were doing this in like boy shorts. I can't mm -hmm. believe it. And yet you still went to college and you got mm -hmm. great grades, but you had the itch to go off and do open mic. Mm -hmm. Well, so I um I chose to go to UCLA over any other school because of the stand-up opportunities in Los Angeles. And then COVID-19 hit and I just never got to do anything uh, in LA. Never just, you know, mm -hmm. kind of felt stuck. Uh, and when I came home to Richmond, just a lot, you know, as probably a lot of people felt, a lot of depression, maybe too much drinking, kind of stuck inside with nothing happening. And what got me out of that was going back to open mics here in Richmond, Virginia. And when I returned to LA, I was like, okay, there is, um, I found it. There's nothing else I want to do. I've been applying to internships. I've been getting rejected. I had roommates like on the busy contract already with their whole investment banking life ahead of them connected. And I was just feeling insecure and aimless. And when I finally got those laughs again and started hearing it, I was like, oh, this is what I need. This is my path and there's nothing else. And I'm doing this. Where thing. was that moment? When was that moment? Kind of that moment of inception, like, uh-huh. I'm not letting go of this. Well, um, 
I guess I would say there were two of them. Um, the more recent one uh, was, I believe the summer of 2020, I started working as a waiter at Sandman Comedy Club, where I'm performing uh, this weekend. And the owner of the club is so generous in that he gives all of his servers stage time on open mic nights and occasionally lets them like open up a show or do a guest spot, which is awesome. And I just remembered going up and I had written a bit about a year ago and that I had never done about how every ex of mine came out as gay after we broke up, and which is true. And I'd never done it. I hadn't done stand-up in maybe three, four years, and I was just went up, and I did it. And I don't know if I crushed, but I got the laughs again that I needed, and I was like, oh, this is this this is what I need. As you've talked to other stand-ups before, it's intoxicating. It's, it's a sense or a rush like through your body that I don't know. It probably feels like uh, something that like athletes it's feel a when they're talking. Yeah, one hundred percent, one hundred percent. But the earlier inception really was in the second grade when I was seven years old. I was driving home with my mother, and she uh, goes, "How was your day?" And I go, uh, "You know, I talked to these teenage girls, and they really freaked me out." And I just start going on this rant about how teenage girls talk. My mom laughed so hard that she pulled the car over. When Cole, you have to do stand up, and I go, "What's stand up?" Um, she takes me home. She shows me uh, Louis C.K., which she should not have done. I was far too young. But after that, I was kind of hooked. And I went up at my 2009, eight years old elementary school talent show, second grade. And I did about four minutes. And to this day, the best set I've ever done. Uh, It was a very supportive audience, but uh, I just absolutely crushed. And that was the initial inception. So ever since then, that's always been in the back of my mind. Like, well, you could do stand up, but... I was like, maybe I want to do uh, something in politics or maybe I want to do business and there's something like that. And uh, that moment in 2020 kind of returned me to that vision I had when I was younger of, oh, this is this is it. Nine this years it. old and you did this at your middle elementary school? Elementary, eight years old at my elementary school talent show. It was the first time I've So what happened afterwards? The teachers pull you aside, students pull you aside. Was there an affirmation of this or kind of, you had to have felt vulnerable up there because it's one thing to put your mom in stitches in the car. Right. And it's another thing to kind of pull that off on the stage. Like I can't imagine dead time, the, right. the, the pregnant silence that every comic fears right. as an eight-year-old. So uh, that night, I was terrified. I It was hard to get me out of the car to come into the auditorium. Uh, and then um, they sat all the acts, all the little kids in the front two rows and you couldn't <laughs> sit with your parents. So I was sitting there just panicked. And I... I I can remember. I know how dry my mouth was. Like I kept spitting, but it was like foam. Like I, I, I know what I felt because I still feel it occasionally at a big show of just this endless pit in my stomach. I'm, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. And I went up there and I couldn't say my R's. So I said, thank you. Thank you. It's really great to be here with you tonight. And that wasn't a joke, but that got a laugh because I was a little eight-year-old boy. And the second I got a laugh, which I'd never gotten before, it was, it was there. Were you locking eyes with your parents in the audience? Were you trying to? Honestly, not at all because the stage lights were so bright. And oh, wow. I actually kind of appreciate that. Some comics want to be able to see the audience, but uh, I kind of like just being washed out. Like you can hear the laughs, but you can't see any faces. It, it, uh, it kind of just like it uh, makes it more conducive to enter like a flow state, I would say, at least for me personally. So if you're pondering this at age eight or nine, why stay on the track to be a great student and get great grades and get accepted into UCLA? with a reel of your hits. I mean, certain parents are increasingly accepting of the fact that, you know, my kid could go nominally to college, not have to be on the academic fast lane and can really lean into comedy. Mm. Um, My parents always encouraged me to do more comedy. And 
frankly, I didn't want to do it because, especially as a kid, it was a big stressor. It was a whole to do. It was like a I would perform once a once a year, and frankly, I just turned into a little jerk of a gremlin, like because I couldn't type for a couple of years, so I need my mom to help me write it up, and I would dictate to her, and she wouldn't type it right, and I would yell at her, and it was like uh, I'd get very insecure and tense, and it just like took a lot of energy out of me to do so. Um, especially just as a little kid. But more importantly, it was sort of just like a novelty thing for the longest time. It was like once a year, this is my moment of glory. I can be a little celebrity in my small environment and make everyone happy and laugh and be the center of attention. And then it's done. Like I wish when I was eight, nine, 10, 11, that the bug had hit me of like, oh, this is what you have to do. Because you know, Chappelle was 14 taking the train from DC to New York doing sets. Chris Rock started at 15, 16 consistently. A bunch of other of the greats did as well. And it never crossed my mind. I sort of, uh, as an actual possibility of a career, you know, mm-hmm. seemed, frankly, I wasn't sure if I had the mental fortitude to do it because I knew how stressed I was and I knew how much rejection you faced. But that, as I'm talking out loud here, that's not actually entirely true in that the entire time from eight years old, pretty much the only books I would read were autobiographies and memoirs of stand-up comedians. So really? I was still fascinating. Yeah, I've read every... Con- I read Lenny Bruce's book in seventh grade. I read like George Carlin's autobiography in the eighth grade, Pryor's... Uh, I don't think Pryor wrote an autobiography, but it was a biography of Pryor. Just all of the classics, all the greatest. And what everyone said was how much work it is to be good. Like how much dedication it is, how much you have to eat, breathe, and sleep it, how much you should be doing four or five mics a night. You should be broke and hungry and starving and working. And that was a consistent theme in every single book. And frankly, it just seemed daunting, especially as a kid, a young guy with a lot of anxiety. Um, and uh, we'll focus on that for a minute. What is there at this matrix of introversion, extroversions? It's fairly universal. You know, Daryl Hammond, for example, Saturday Night Live visited very dark places. And you wouldn't know, you're necessarily looking at the shadow and persona, person that brings so much cheer, who's so on, has so many demons privately. Uh, Peter Sellers, various other people who've traversed it. You, you sense a kind of a universality. It's something that ties many comedians together. Mm. Yeah, it is. It is 100% universal. It's a, there's like a hole that needs to be filled, I guess, in everyone. And a lot of the time from other comics, it's actual trauma or difficulties or something happened in their childhood or in their life that they can directly pinpoint as the need or as the, the, the maybe a cause or a, uh, as you said, inception or impetus of their need to for this approval. But really, it's just, it's just the need to be loved. And a lot of people have it a lot of people feel that and i feel you keep unpacking it i mean there's something you see this universe you you're well read in this and you see a universality and kind of depression and anxiety and it takes a lot i mean if you're if you're depressed and anxious you think that the last thing you want to do is go up on that stage and make yourself vulnerable to people right yet there's this desire to get that dopamine hit that desire for affirmation right um, it's something that ties so many comics and performers together, singers even. Right. And people who go up and, and uh, living in the limelight, if you will, as Rush put it. Right. I don't know. I don't know if I can speak to everyone's experience or the specific universality of it, although I will say that it is incredibly consistent. But I can speak to myself in that I was like maybe two, three weeks ago going through like an incredibly... I wouldn't say a full-on depressive episode, but a really hard two, three weeks just on my mental state. And 
I stopped going to open mics and I skipped some of my shows. I made up excuses and didn't do them. And I just felt worse and worse and worse. And when I finally went up to do my next open mic, I'm normally a writer. I normally write and perform my exact material. Some people just riff. I'm not normally do that, but I just went up and I said, um, the weird thing about having depression is that you don't realize you're depressed. Like you don't think I'm not going to function. The first thought you have is just, man, my bed feels really nice this morning. And I got a chuckle. I didn't get a laugh. It wasn't a full joke. It wasn't, but I got a chuckle. And then I was like, oh, oh, this is, this is it. This is the avenue. This is the, I can project my pain and my insecurity and my, and my everything that I dislike about myself onto these people and create joy out of it. It's kind of incredible. Like that so many comedians are self-deprecating. So many comedians will go up and talk about the horrible things that have happened and their experiences in the psych ward, their experiences being bullied, the terrible things their parents said to them. It's horribly dark personal content. And then they get laughs out of it. And I think it's better than any therapy. As a guy who's been in therapy for a lot of years, it's almost it's better than any form of therapy, really, I would say. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Cole Meyer. He is a greenhorn comic, fresh off graduating from UCLA. He's barely 21 years old, and he's taking names, accepting gigs, performing at Richmond Sandman Comedy Club, where he was once a a server? A server, yeah. yeah. I'm a, I'm a veteran of Sandman Comedy Club, I would say, so I'm entitled to hear thank you for your service. Uh, <laughs> you can find him at Colmeyer Comedy on Instagram. Yes, sir. Talk to me about social media because that's something that has really blossomed in the timeline of, uh, you know, concurrent in the timeline that you've been a comic mm-hmm. and a comedian. If I trace it back to you being all of eight years old, right? Like 13 years ago, now you're 21. You saw the explosion of clearly Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, which I don't understand as right. an old man. Gen Xer. But now, especially in the pandemic, and clearly Bo Burnham took it to the nth degree with Inside right? right, and on Netflix. And we were all homebound and we're able to see people riff. I'm thinking of George Hahn. Mm. I'm thinking of various comics who do impressions on Twitter. I can't even remember their names, but they're so funny. And then you see them and then the next night you see them on The Tonight Show. Right. Or who is the woman on that HBO series about the aged uh, stand-up comic? Oh, um, uh, Hacks, right? Hacks. Smart, and then yeah. there's the young woman who does all of these jokes about, right. you know, she ends up on it and it's become a real accelerant. Mm-hmm. I mean, where it used to be that Showtime and Comedy Central and HBO were the kingmakers, now you could, in theory, become viral and get an explosive bit on one of these channels that we're all on. I wouldn't say in theory. I would say that is what is happening. I would say people are blowing up more from YouTube. Instagram and TikTok than any other of the traditional media. Or uh, it's funny to call Netflix and Amazon and all that stuff traditional media, but for me it is. Um, it's kind of fascinating. It's both incredibly helpful for someone like me just starting out and incredibly terrifying. And I'll break it down because back in the day, and this is me talking from not personal experience, but just like reading and knowledge and stuff. You essentially had to. I love uh, it. A twenty-one-year-old is lecturing me on back right. in the day. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you about Lenny Bruce. Son. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, you you kind of had to get um you get discovered by an agent maybe, or you would get discovered by the Tonight Show booker and go on the Tonight Show, and that would make your career. Or you would get enough prominence that you make it to the Montreal Comedy Festival, and then someone there would see you and then you get booked and then you might get your pilot or your this or your that. And there was a, a set structure. There was a path that every single person had to go down. And now that path has been blown up and completely eradicated. 
it is entirely, in my opinion, up to you to climb and scratch and claw, and it's all your own effort. That's got to be terrifying. Well, I say, you know, the duality of it is invigorating, I could say, as a journalist going and lecturing journalism students at universities. You're a person, you don't need a video camera anymore. You have everything in the cloud, on the iPhone. You can be a student journalist and you can break news and make news. And we've seen among some of the biggest stories in the country, students pop up from universities and chip in and their stuff gets optioned by CNN and other places. Right. That's invigorating, but it's also terrifying in that everybody's in the dance pit and you have to try to get in and make uh, make an impact, right? right? It's, it's a free-for-all. Yes, and even more than that is that it's still changing because the comics that I think of when we're talking about the ones that have taken advantage of non-traditional media to become big are guys like Andrew Schultz, uh, Shane Gillis, Mark Norman, Sam Morrill. I'm not sure if you're familiar with any of these names. They're all very funny. But they essentially got themselves big through their own podcasts, through their own YouTube specials, through Andrew Schultz in particular, kind of pioneered this model of specifically posting clips of crowd work or audience interactions, which people find super fascinating and now has blown up as the prime mode of jokes you see on What is Reels. crowd work? What is that? Crowd work is when a comic engages with the audience. So just asks them, hey, what's your name? What do you do for work? Oh, you do this? You do that? Ah, and then sort of creating a joke out of it. So it, sometimes maybe they have jokes in their back pocket and it just seems very natural. And other times it's entirely improvisational. But like crowds love it because it gets them involved with it. And it seems very impressive of the comic to do. It's not my strong suit or my thing, but again, I'm like eight months into this. So at least, quote unquote, professionally. So I'm working on it still. But those guys, the difference between uh, them and people of my exact generation is that they probably had 10 to 15 years of working in the traditional system, not making it uh, through that system, but building up their skills. Gigging in person. You yes, mean. exactly. And then were able to film and take advantage of the virality of going viral. And that's how they got their acclaim. But they still had 10, 15 years working in that old system, the, the more traditional version where you can kind of build up your skills. And now it's kind of more so of a free-for-all because that system more or less doesn't exist anymore. So what is that ecosystem? I'm thinking of Sunset Rodeo, the comedy store. What are these, all these stand-ups who'd come on Leno and right. Letterman and everything would say, I was just at the comedy store the other day. As a little kid, I thought like, is that where you go to buy jokes? Right. Oh, that's too funny. Um, <laughs> the the ecosystem and uh, Los Angeles and New York are the two biggest comedy hubs. Yeah. I've never... And then Caroline's just closed and super depressing. Yeah. So that that tells you something, which was, which was dominant when I lived in Manhattan, but right. LA seems to be the place to go to kind of follow this dream? It absolutely is. It is the number of comics there. Uh, there seem to be, it seems incredibly saturated. It's great because, I mean, comedy is booming and thriving and it sort of reminds me of like what happened in uh, the 70s and 80s, but it's also terrifying because there's so much more competition. That's kind of a theme of this. A lot of, uh, a lot of potential benefits, but you kind of got to grab advantage of them and that's all on you. So it ends up being scary. The environment there, at least for me, is totally different than what I expected. And it's been tough for me to get acclimated to, but I'm still working on it. But what puts meat on the bones in terms of income? I mean, this is full disclosure. Right. Sometimes we cut to the chase with the mercenary questions. I'm, I'm reminded of, I think of like Def Leppard. This is before your time. Yeah. 
Def Leppard was a great band once. Yep. In the, once in the young man, let me tell you about Def Leppard. They did like MTV Unplugged mm. twenty five years ago or something. It's like when we were first starting out in the late nineteen seventies, we would play for fish and chips at an abandoned steel mill. Yeah. You know that kind of thing. Are you playing for fish and chips effectively? Is it not about income at this point? Uh, even worse, sometimes I'm paying to play. Yes, payola. So the way open mics work in Los Angeles, and there are some, uh, there are ones that are more traditional where you just show up and sign up or put your name in that list and get uh, get the opportunity to go up, and those are called bucket mics, and uh, those are still exist, and you just go up and you're free, and you're in a bar or something, and maybe there's unsuspecting people. But for the most part, there are these hole-in-the-wall black box theaters uh, owned by more established comedians all throughout the city, and you sign up on a service called Slotted. And you put your name down and you get a list. They're called slotted mics. And when you get there, you Venmo $5 for five minutes. What? Yes. $5 yes. for five minutes. And then you perform in front of- You other... have to Venmo when you get there? They don't even trust you to they pay don't... the five... You have to pay first. I know. <laughs> I'm sorry. I know. And I used to not have my car there. So I'd be, I'm, I'd, sorry. I'd I'm Uber, sorry. I'd Uber to a mic, spend $30 on that, and then pay $5, the then bomb, the and then injury. go home. Yeah, it was horrible. Would they feed you? No. Uh <laughs> You don't get anything. The drinks are also different. And then you're performing only in front of other comedians who also paid $5, who are sometimes the most miserable crowd you've ever seen. You can get people to look up from their phone. It's incredibly impressive. They're probably there to ice you to kind of thin out the herd of, of competition. Some are. Some are. Some people are very supportive. Sometimes you can go into these rooms and there's just good people or a good host and and, and it's a very happy you vibe. You described it like this dark room. It is. I'm sorry, dark room. You show up and you take a chin out of the box and you pay five dollars on Venmo. I love that. Yeah, and that's what I do. That's what I do every day. I get off work. Uh, I'm a I'm a busser slash host at a pizza restaurant in Brentwood. I get off work. I drive 45 minutes to Hollywood. I for the next five hours, I do probably five mics, just hours on end, just telling jokes as much as long as I can and. It's fascinating. It's fascinating that some things will work in front of one crowd and then it won't work at all for the next two hours. And you're like, well, this is never going to work. And then you try it again just one time with one tweak and then it gets a laugh again. And that's part of it. That's part of the system. But frankly, starting out, the system is you kind of get scammed and you kind of just got to take it on the chin. Like it's not it's not exactly that it's a scam paying five bucks to go to these mics. <laughs> They're very upfront about it. Like you're not getting tricked, but that's part of it. And then there's shows called bringer shows where more established comedians will bring on younger comics or new starting comics onto their shows and give them the opportunity to join. But in exchange, you have to bring five people or 10 people or 15 people to the show and then they'll go buy tickets, do the two drink minimum and like pay the older guy, the, the, whoever produced the show gets all that money essentially. And that's a interesting experience because again sometimes if people are very upfront about it you don't feel rude at all that's how i've gotten my shows at the comedy store they were like you're funny i'll give you this opportunity but you got to bring five people and i'm like well it's the comedy store that's the mecca of comedy i have to i have to I, there's no problem with that but other times they'll show up at a venue and they won't tell you it was a bringer and they'll be like you didn't bring anyone and i go no and they go okay you're on last you get two minutes and you're like well, this is a hazing that I had no idea about. It's all hazing. There was a uh, there's a gentleman who I'm actually good friends with now, and he gives me a lot of stage time constantly in LA. But the first time I met him, he said, "Hey, Venmo me forty dollars. You'll enter this competition, and you'll get a thousand dollars if you win." And then I Venmo the forty dollars. Competition got rescheduled. 
and it never got that money back. But then he's like, hey, I'm doing this show here. You want to come? I'm like, sure. Hey, I'm doing this show here. You want to come? Yeah, sure. I'll do it. And now I've done 20 shows, 30 shows with this guy. And now you really think about it, the $5 that I'm paying, five times 20, that's 100. So really, I just saved 60 bucks by <laughs> getting scammed for that 40 at the top. Full disclosure, I'm Robert Farzad. Please do stay with us. Full disclosure podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is fullderadio.com. You can catch us on all social media channels, including Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and whatever's left of Twitter. The handle is fullderadio. And of course, my DMs are always open, so holler at me. We are joined in studio by Cole Meyer. He's an aspiring comedian, barely 21 years old, and he's been doing this since he was eight. That's what blows my mind. He lives in Los Angeles, a recent graduate of University of California in Los Angeles, UCLA, where he graduated with very high honors, but his heart wasn't doing comedy. And so he's been explaining to us how he has to Venmo his way into various gigs. So talk to me about the other element of this. It is a little cliche that the busboy slash waiter working in Los Angeles and sees Larry David and delivers the pizza to the table. And here's a bottle on me, Mr. David. I'm a big fan of your comedy. Can you can you look at this screenplay? I mean, right. you've got to be surrounded by celebrity left and right and, and, and the hunger and not giving into the instinct to kind of rush these celebs and right. say, can you put me in front of the line? Right. That Yeah. No, that is a big part of it. Like you mentioned Daryl Hammond earlier. I did a show. I, did, I was on the same show as Daryl Hammond before, but on the same show as some bigger comics like Matt Reif, who's blowing up now way younger, or like a very funny European comic named Ismo, who is a, who's a bigger uh, deal as well. And frankly, you just can't bum rush them. You can't, you can't bother them. You can't. Uh, it's just not. It would feel feel purely awkward. But here's the strange thing. It is transactional that people are telling you here, Venmo me 40 bucks or Venmo me 200 bucks and I'll be your, I'll be your, you know, I'll be your keeper and your mentor. It's like a transactional mentorship as opposed to something more organic where I always imagine they see you playing in some dark hole and they're like, I like this kid. He's got promise. I'm going to tag him on. I'll let him open for me for six minutes when I'm at my next big gig. And hopefully that generosity of spirit, maybe you can help him along the way. Maybe you can help him with writing. Maybe you can be in the green room with him or her, right? Is that just in my imagination? It's not how it works? No, no, that is how it works. I'm just nowhere near like the level of a Larry David person giving me that opportunity. I'm at the level of a guy who's been doing this for one year and is still sort of also a waiter uh, giving me the opportunity, you know? (laughs) Like my first show I ever booked. Okay, so I graduated in uh, or finished school in May. Uh, and then I had to do summer classes to graduate technically in August. So I was doing summer classes, working, and doing open mics. And that was it. I had no shows. I was just trying to get better and get into a routine. And a uh, fellow named Erish saw me at a mic one time. And he said, hey, you're really, really funny. Let me get you on my show. And I was like, awesome. Now, his show is in uh, essentially like a hole-in-the-wall sneaker shop slash wrestling memorabilia store on Melrose with a couple folding chairs, a tiny three-foot stage, and one mic, right? But that was my first show, and it was incredible, and I felt so honored just from the laughs. But what ended up happening, and it kind of sent me on the perfect trajectory for for my first couple months of really doing full effort, is that I was in a fraternity in college. And one of my friends, unbeknownst to me, sent the link to the show to my fraternity group chat. Just for some reason, no one was doing anything that night. And 40 people showed up from to see me, essentially. 
And if they hadn't shown up, there probably would have been eight people in the audience. But suddenly there were 48 people. And there were a lot of other comics that do their own little hole-in-the-wall shows at that venue. And they were like, oh, this guy could bring 50 people. Let's book him on everything. And obviously, I can't do that. I don't do that anymore. Oftentimes, I bring no one. Sometimes, I'll bring one person or something. But that the optics of that kind of gave me the push to get booked for a couple of shows. And then once people see you are being booked, it doesn't really matter if they know you or not. They'll sort of start booking you. Mm. Um, and... The other thing is that I will cold DM people with shows all the time. I'll say, hey, I'm this guy. I'm Cole. Over Instagram. Over Instagram. Instagram Twitter. in Los Angeles is the main mode of communication for stand-up, which is interesting. But uh, I will cold DM folks that I know have shows say like, hey, uh, I would love to be on your show. Here's a clip. And uh, depending on the person, they might not respond. They might say we're busy or they might say, sure, like you're funny. We'll get you on. And that has been part of my strategy in continuing to network and build relationships and grow is I have started producing my own shows and then I will book other comedians and I hope that in the future they will book me on their things. Is there a business model in this or are we all paying each other in exposure and laughs at this point? There, We are all paying each other in exposure and laughs at this point, but there is a potential business model. I, I've done th for the last three months my own show at a nightclub in Santa Monica called Senator Jones. See, it's about 100 people. And uh, we called the show Senator Jokes, and then we changed it to the big one, and then someone else had that name, so we had to change it to Too Big, and now the name's still in flux, so promoting it is kind of tough right now. But there's, for the first two shows, the tickets were free just to fill it, and the third show, I made tickets $5, and all of a sudden, I was making money. And, and, and there's a... There's a path to make this scalable, essentially, because it's a nice venue and you can book funny people and there's no comedy in Santa Monica. And I can see this way of maybe creating an Instagram page and we film everyone's sets on our shows, maybe post clips, try to get followers, try to get traction for the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Eventually, you can take that name, whatever the name of our show is. Right now, it's too big. Uh, and if it's big enough, then maybe we can take it on the road or we can take it uh, to the comedy store and they'll do, uh, you know will get to produce in one of their rooms. Do you know anyone who has successfully parlayed kind of an Instagram presence or something into a pay-per-view thing? We now have the technology with Vimeo or anything to do a, a kind of a live 4K show. And if people, that's the nice thing about it. If you're at home, you can mm. watch these things. You don't have to be affiliated with a Netflix or an HBO Max or a Comedy Central. I think Louis C.K. may have been doing it in his time of, in his in his wilderness time, which he's still largely in the wilderness. Right. But a comedian being able to cut out all the various middle and go straight to the paying spectator. Right. Um, Has it even been done? What you just described, I have never seen done. Well, no, Chris Rock wouldn't do it. Clearly a Netflix or someone else would pay him a massive advance. Right. He's much more worthwhile to that. But I'm thinking about the various smaller people who could put up little crumbs out there. Not like a Fiverr or a gig economy type thing, but you know, little, little, little chances to see a person. Right. All this stuff is put up there for free and you see it excerpted on YouTube, but it must be a great customer acquisition vehicle at some point. I do want to ask you specifically with Caroline's going under in Manhattan, the esteemed comedy club, the venerable comedy club that launched so many people. What is generally still the business model there to sell drinks and cover charge and not really pay the comics? Yes. I mean, if you're a big comic, if you're a headline act, do you get paid? I believe so. So if you're uh, if you're at like a comedy club in Indiana, if you're a touring comic and you're the headliner at the Funny Bone in Indiana or something or Sandman's in Richmond, you will get paid 100%, as will likely the feature. 
as it pertains to places like the store and the improv and stuff, a lot of times it's like Bill Burr or Bobby Lee or a big name just dropping in to do a set. I don't know if they get paid for doing that or not, but there are people at these bigger clubs called paid regulars, and they are sort of like the store's at house comics and they can get paid people at my level i, I do not get paid at all so what tell, so unpack what you've been doing for me to make a living to, to pay your place to pay your way through los angeles it's really spending the evenings and weekends gigging and then working during the week yes the free hours at the pizza restaurant yeah yeah i work like 30 hours a week at this pizza place and frankly if i wanted to live a more comfortable lifestyle i probably would want to work 40 45 which is available to me but I don't so that I can have enough time to commit to my comedy. So that's how I make money. Almost all of that will go to rent and food and gas and a pot. And uh, <laughs> and then I, um, for my gigs, you just sort of uh, drive. The-, the only times I get paid, frankly, are when I'm on shows that other comedians on my level are producing because they want to foster good relationships, good karma, seem professional, and I will pay the comedians on my shows as well. I have sometimes, I have not other times. Uh, <laughs> it depends on how much money I make from the show. The only times I've gotten paid, and occasionally I've gotten cuts of, if I bring a lot of people, sometimes people will pay me. Like uh, I did a show at the comedy store and I brought uh, 14 folks out and I got my percentage of that. I got like 14 times five, you know, I got five bucks from each of the person I, people I brought because I brought more than 10. But that's not getting paid for my jokes, you know, it's getting paid for bringing people. So how to get paid for my jokes is really the question of the day. That's that's the next step. That's the thing that's interesting and scary about it is there's not like a promotion. There's not a boss I can go to and be like, hey, I think I'm doing really well now. My jokes are reacting, getting booked. How about you pay me now? There's no one I can talk to to do that. So what there is, is there are, in my head, really, there are basically two or three pathways to you don't sell blood or plasma or anything it's not no i didn't it's not that bad yet (laughs) it might become that bad we'll see full disclosure we're going to close you out with an excerpt of cole myers comic stylings thank you so much for joining us on the show thank you thank you for having me it's been wonderful uh but one of the things my therapist recommended i do is start keeping a journal keep track of any negative uh, thoughts I have or depressing urges, except the problem is, is I'm depressed. So I'm lazy and never got a second journal. So my therapy journal and my comedy journal are the same journal. And I have been having so much trouble recently figuring out what is a premise for a joke and what's just a really sad thought I've had recently. So you guys don't mind, I'm gonna share a few of those with you tonight. Let me know what you think. My dog's therapy is more successful than mine. Isn't that rough? Uh, true, true, Ziggy's an introvert, we just found it out. Uh, do I smoke too much weed or? No. I forgot what I was gonna say. Thank you though. Yeah. Uh, my mother. Uh, I was hazed for my fraternity, and now I think I'm sexually submissive. <laughs> you were listening to aspiring stand-up comedian Cole Meyer, all of 21 years old. We wanted to close you out 
with a flashback to my 2021 interview with funny man Kyle Grooms, a veteran of Chappelle's show, Comedy Central, Deaf Comedy Jam, BET, HBO. He survived a near-fatal seizure and emergency brain tumor surgery. He discussed his big breaks with us. I got on the Chappelle show maybe my second year in New York, maybe my first year in New York. And um, and moving to New York, you, you work every day. You could be on stage every night. I think I was on stage every night in New York. Kyle Grooms, tell me about the Chappelle show. I'm dying to know what it was like to get the call up because, you know, that thing is a it's it's a cultural totem. I think it debuted. What was it in 2003? early 2003 and the stuff is just quoted left and right i mean charlie <laughs> murphy the late charlie murphy the yeah. late rick james i mean this stuff is is uh it you know he's a he's a legend and it's amazing that it's already almost two decades ago but tell me where you were when you got that call and what they said and how excited you were and where they where they took you out to and what the whole process and the feedback was like uh you know it's funny uh the way i got the Chappelle show neil brennan like I uh, was working at the Boston Comedy Club in Manhattan, lower Manhattan. And I didn't know who he was. I didn't know. I just thought he was a, a new comic just trying to work out some material, you know. And I was like, yo, man, you funny. You know, you should hang in there. You know, keep it up. Your stuff is tight. You know, you you doing well. You know, you you, you got it. And he was like, oh, yeah, I, I write with Chappelle. I'm his writing partner and the co-creator of Chappelle's show. And, you know, then that's how I got on that. And I knew Dave, but I didn't, you know, I know him, but not like that, just in passing. And I've done a few shows with him. And then they invited me to come in and do some sketches with Dave. And I said, okay, I'll do it. And then they asked me to come and write on the show, start writing, submitting stuff. And then that's when uh, Dave left. He left that week. We were actually shooting the last sketch. I think I was in the last few sketches before he left. You cross pads, you cross pads with Ashley Larry and Charlie Murphy and all these 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 various people who went off to have amazing careers after Chappelle. Yeah, well, I I, I knew Donnell, Ashley Larry before Chappelle show. Me and him, we was on like the the urban comedy scene together. Charlie Murphy, I just knew from TV, but I met Charlie once I signed on to well, I I started going to the set. And then I I was uh, doing the I'm Rich tour. It was uh, Donnell, Charlie, Bill Burr, and myself. And then Bill started getting his own thing. So then it was me and Donnell and Charlie. And then it was down to me and Charlie. <laughs> and then, yeah, then Charlie went on and got became a better comedian and went on his own and started having people open for him. But uh, yeah, I, we all kind of know those guys. I already kind of knew those guys before Chappelle's show. Yeah. Isn't it amazing to look back now and you can't think of Prince without thinking about the Chappelle skit with the basketball and the pancakes. You can't <laughs> think of Rick James, you know, rest in peace. You can't think of him without that infamous I'm Rick James B skit. You can't think of, you know, a lot of people think about Charlie Murphy more than they do Eddie Murphy because it was so, oh, yeah. you know, it was, it was a risky bet that this guy, so the backstory is that this guy had such long tails, like mm -hmm. ridiculous Hollywood tall tails that he's like, why don't you tell him and we can reenact them? And that then kind of became the genesis. If you watch Drunk History and a bunch of other programs, it's second nature yeah. today, mm. but it was definitely... It was definitely a creative risk. Like you could imagine it getting cut, left on the cutting room floor back in two thousand four, two thousand five. Oh yeah, and 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 it, and it was a brilliant idea because uh, Charlie is a 
amazing storyteller and I love hearing his stories. He's like, I miss him still to this day. You know, it was recently he passed. It was the anniversary of his death. And yeah, Charlie's an amazing storyteller. Like the world didn't even get to see how funny Charlie is, man. Well, they did, but they didn't, you know. I'm learning a lot being a father, man. I didn't know girl babies learned to speak before boy babies. Like when I'm on a playground, my daughters are speaking complete sentences and the boys are walking around like uh, duh, duh, duh. <laughs> bumping their heads on the swing, licking the seesaw. And my daughter's like, father, this child is peculiar. Can we go home now, daddy? I want to watch bubble guppies. My daughters, man, they something, they daddy me to death too. Daddy, 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 which feels good, man. You know, really feel, you know, it really feels good to have somebody call me daddy and I'm really their father. <laughs> Full disclosure, stay with us. This show, podcast, NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at fullDradio and DM me. Uh, get into my DMs if you'd like to get in touch and carry it on your air. If you're just joining us, we are talking to Kyle Grooms, a veteran funny man who I met at the International Church of Cannabis back in 2017. Unbelievably, as I kept up with him, and his stuff is hilarious, he went back and in 2019 had a seizure, which led to emergency brain surgery, and the stuff was processed. Thank God he came out of it, and the, the benign growth was taken out of his brain, but you could see Kyle Grooms' brain humor on Amazon Video. Uh, tell me what it was like adapting that experience and being, you know, I've seen this stuff on YouTube, Kyle. You're both vulnerable and paternal and grateful to your wife for taking care of you. But you're also cracking ridiculous things like you're saying, you know, now I can be sure that these are my kids. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, you know, I had to keep humor, man. It, it's just part of what I do. You know, I have to, if I if something bad happens, that's that's part of what it is, right? Richard Pryor made fun of him setting fire. You got to say something, you know, I can't just go on and you know what it is. It's part of the art form, you know? So if anybody goes on YouTube or your various social media channels, they can see the stitches on your cranium. They can see you in the hospital. They can see you using an articulated spoon to eat applesauce while your wife cheers you on. Um, when <laughs> did it occur to you to kind of get all this down on, on, you know, camera and radio just to have it documented? Yeah, the director, Dean Alexander, he, it was his idea, you know, you know, he was, he's a young, hungry photographer. And he said, Hey, you know, we should document this. And I was like, what? I got stitches in my head, bro. You know? And then uh, I allowed him to do it. And I said, and, I, and then I decided I wanted to do a special anyway. I said, yeah, I should probably document this and make a special out of it. And I couldn't drive for six months, so I couldn't go to spots. Uh, so I, from September to January, when I shot it, I, I had to put together a set, you know, an hour set, chopped it down to a half hour and then chopped it down to 15 minutes with some other stuff. And it worked out. It worked out well. Kyle, how involved was your brain surgery? They took out a benign growth, but there's a significant thing. I mean, they have to drill into the the hard bone and then there's the layer. There's the kind of the flap underneath it. And then 
to go in and take out the the neoplasm or whatever it is. How long was that surgery? How involved was it? What was the risk of you losing uh, verbal or motor skills? Oof. Well, any well, my doctor explained to me that he didn't explain. He didn't go in depth really until after my my checkup. But he was saying he had sure. to do like drill holes to just like to score it, you know, and, and then he had to cut along. I, he basically, he just said he had to do drill pre-drill holes that, that freaked me out already. And then they had to saw it open and split it. It, it was too, I don't know what, they, I really don't know, but yeah, what the whole thing was, but just that they had to open me up anytime, you know, and, they, and if they touch your brain, it was my left frontal lobe. So that controls my creativity and everything. So what did it feel like? What did it look like when you woke up, when you came to? What did it feel like? Oh, you know what? To be honest, when I, they put me to sleep on propofol, you know, that, so it, like, when I woke up, yeah, that, it's, that stuff's amazing. I didn't feel, I didn't feel a thing, man. I woke up and when you're in the hospital, they ask you, like, who's the president? When's your birthday? What day is it? What do you know the date? Do you know where you are? And I do remember the first question they asked me was, uh, what year is it? And uh, I said, 1969, <laughs> which is ironic because that's my birthday. But, you know, but I just got it wrong. But to me, it felt like I was born again, you know, on that day. That's like, that's my birthday, you know. Just, I know it's 2019, wow. but it feels like my birthday again, you know. <laughs> I saw on your video that you you lost it you lost it when your nephews came you said you lost it and that was kind of a moment where you briefly lost control and you gave in to the crying and you realized how how loved you were universally yeah. i mean the beautiful things you say about your wife yeah how she took care of you how the kids yeah. rallied just and the then, nephews and, coming into the er i mean talk to me about that yeah just saying my nephews cuz you know you you want to be strong for not that you want to be strong but it's like just to be in that position now you're vulnerable like you you're humbled it's like there's nothing you can do now like, you, you know what I mean like no matter how much you take care of yourself you work out you exercise it's like boom I never thought I would be in a hospital bed like that you know and then when I found out how concerned the comedy community was for me how much they were like you know they started to go fund me my friend Marina Franklin did that and then and then how much they started donating and people were really on pins and needles and cared that, you know, whether I lived or died, you know, that was like, wow. You know, I felt like I got my funeral, my flowers ahead of time. You know, a lot of comedians pass and then we all post pictures and post, you know, stuff about them on on social media. But me, I felt like I got to see the love before. Like, whoa, wow. OK. You know, that that, that moved me. That that, that humbled me. That, it almost embarrassed me, like, wow, you know? <laughs> Kyle, tell me about the recovery process and rehabilitation and, uh, you know, occupational therapy, speech therapy. Well, you know, once I was in the hospital, they were giving me therapy. But then once I left the hospital mm. and they cleaned up the, the mess that was in my head, they mopped it up and everything and closed it up. I actually, to be honest, really started to just rejuvenate on its own. They 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 put me on Keppra, which is an anti-seizure medication, and it's to help with the healing and stuff. And um, since then, I had a few, two MRIs. One was delayed because of the COVID, 
but I just recently got it and it, I got a clean, uh, you know, clean slate. It was, it was a good checkup. Uh, everything seems to be normal. And yeah, and by the grace of God, I haven't really had any, any therapy, nothing. You know, my, my comedy, my wit is returning. I remember all my material, remember my childhood. I remember everything, you know? And, um, yeah, I'm, I just lucky. I dodged a bullet. I've heard of people having the same thing, but in another part of their brain that they can't get to. You know, I've heard people losing half their brain. I just, all kinds of stories about people with their brains since this, this happened to me. Like people inbox me about stuff. Yeah, I'm just so lucky. For you didn't. So here's the thing: you didn't want to get your revenge against vegan food and have a big old steak. <laughs> no, because I kind of contribute my my plant based lifestyle to my fast recovery. <laughs> How about that? Yeah, <laughs> you know, it just helped me re regenerate my cells. You know. <laughs> Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to comedian Kyle Grooms. He's appeared on VH1, NBC, uh, The Chappelle Show. He appeared in Amy Schumer with Amy Schumer in the film I Feel Pretty, as well as a half-hour special on Comedy Central. So as I like to quote, you know, you're a young guy, but I like to say you are definitely internationally known and known to rock a microphone. Uh, what does that feel like? You're not you're not out there looking for art director gigs or graphic design <laughs> gigs. That you are a man in demand. Oh man, this feels great. You know, once somebody said that I was a journeyman, and I was like, no, I'm not a journeyman. I'm you know. But then I then I sat back and I was like, you know, it's kind of good to be a journeyman because then that means you're on a journey, and you know, hopefully you'll always be fed and eating. And I'm still doing what I love, and you know. 25 years later. Well, I quit my day job in 2000. So, and you know, 21 years later, yeah, I'm still going. I have to ask you about what you thought of uh, Dave Chappelle's monologue on George Floyd. It was done outdoors in the throes of the pandemic, 846, yeah. which is the haunting time that, you know, uh, this uh, unarmed yeah. African-American male now it's a infamous and famous character in history, mm. almost a martyr, was effectively murdered. I mean, it wasn't just funny, funny stuff. It's yeah. it's uh it's really venturing into a territory that you were wondering, you had to wonder where is there room for traditional comedy last year? This had to be especially scathing. Yeah. And, oh yeah. And uh I mean it was a it was a it was an, a really angry meditation. Yeah. Yeah. When I watch Dave, it it almost resets my my uh focus because you know that's what comedy is supposed to kind of be you know like that like for me you know that's how i i love it like that that it was so organic and people say it really wasn't funny but it was kind of thought provoking and then you kind of kind of fill in the if you know funny you could fill in the blanks you get what i'm saying <laughs> and sometimes it's funny not ha ha funny but funny and hard, that's funny. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know. But Dave is, you know, just to watch him work, it don't have to be yuck, yuck, hoo-hoo, 10 jokes or, you know, whatever jokes per minute, laugh per minute. And you, he could always be funny. He could always throw in a, you know, banana peel somewhere. But, you know, you, you know that's possible. But he's, yeah, he's like a Jedi, bro. You were listening to some of my 2021 interview with stand-up comic Kyle Grooms. Catch the whole episode wherever you get your podcasts. We called it The Brain Trust of Kyle Grooms. 
Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly and the Robbins School at the University of Richmond. We podcast to NPR, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. The link is fulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate, and recommend us. And follow along on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. The handle is Full D Radio. Catch me on MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now every week. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week. Thank you.